Welcome to Writer's Spark, the podcast with tips and tricks about fiction writing. I'm your host, Melissa Bourbon, national bestselling author, developmental fiction editor, writing coach and instructor, and founder of Writer's Spark Academy. When I started my writing journey, learning about the industry and the craft of writing wasn't as easy as it is now. I wish I knew then what I know now. And that is what Writer's Spark is all about. I'm paying it forward. I want new and aspiring authors to learn from those who came before and from those who are living the writing life. That's what this podcast is about. There are episodes on craft topics and conversations with authors because I strongly believe that we learn from each other. Wherever you are on your writing path, Writer Spark is for you. Check out our courses on our website, www.writersparkacademy.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please follow and share like and subscribe. Today my guest is Martha Ann Toll, author of Three Muses. It made the millions most anticipated second half of 2022 list. Vulture Magazine included it in 57 books we can't wait to read this fall and put it in their 12 can't miss debuts for September. This is a much anticipated novel and, and upon publication it has been skyrocketing to wonderful accolades. Today, Martha and I are talking about having your first book published as an older person. So grab a cup of something tasty, settle in, and get ready to ignite your writer spark. Welcome, Martha. Martha Ann Toll. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you, Melissa. And I'm really thrilled to be on your podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I'm just thrilled to talk to you today. I... I'm so interested in your topic of the benefit of being older, you know, whatever that looks like when you are publishing fiction and how that connects to what you write and how you write. So before we jump into that topic and all that that encompasses, I would like to hear a little bit about your origin story because you've been a writer for a long time. Thank you. Yes. And I'm really excited to be here to talk about my debut novel, Three Muses. So I grew up in a household that prized reading and writing. My mother was a professional copy editor long before the days of computers. So I have memories of her with galleys spread across the dining room table along with the laundry. (laughs) And she was very sharp and a very sharp editor. and very interested in reading and encouraged us all to read. My dad was a lawyer and also extremely interested in writing. So, and reading and writing. So my, I never had any formal writing education. My um, parents, I think, gave me a better education than I could have hoped for. They were extremely rigorous. And I did go to them to ask them to mark up my papers and they did a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I did study ballet briefly as a child. I had no talent, but I loved it. And that got into my book. And then I studied music quite seriously. I played the viola and was a music major, but somewhere in college, but somewhere along the way, I kind of recognized that words were my thing. So I went to law school and most of my law jobs were extremely writing focus. In some ways, as you said, I've been writing all my life. I was also the girl who journaled and wrote the school plays and that kind of thing. Um, And then um, I always wanted to write fiction because I've been a maniac fiction reader forever, but I couldn't, I, I felt like I didn't understand plot. Like I had a lot of words, but no plot. And I still can't put this together very well, but my mom died pretty suddenly in 1999. 
and the floodgates, the fiction floodgates open. So I have been writing fiction since then. It took a really in the long- form of in the form of short stories, mostly novels. I started with novels. I have written a couple of short stories, and I've been lucky enough to publish a bunch of excerpts from some of my novels. But I did not. It took me a long time to get a novel published. You might have heard me use the word plural novels. I've written a lot of novels, but Three Muses is my first to get published, okay. and I also, I, I, in a parallel track, also developed a book critic career. Um, so I'm a working book critic. Um, and I did this during the many decades that I was working in social justice. So it was a bit of a train wreck, but it was fun. <laughs> yeah, you wear a lot of different hats. I saw from your website and just reading a little bit more about you that yeah, you you have many, many talents, both in the writing arena and outside and the social justice and uh, specifically focused on racial social justice and diversity. That's a big passion of mine as well. So thank you. I was glad. I was really glad to read that about you. Yeah, you're correct that it's a passion. I feel that we readers have been deprived by having, um, you know, such a narrow focus up until Recently, um, we, we've been sort of deprived of black and brown voices and more marginalized voices. And it's such a rich, rich literature. So I'm very, very excited about the developments. And I, as a book critic, I make an effort to um, seek out those kind, those books by those authors to review. So people of color, women, writers who are coming from independent presses that don't get the attention that they might get. And you know better than I do that the world of criticism is is narrowing. It's pretty hard. There's not a lot of, you know, airtime, print time for book criticism. And I think it's important. I do, because I think it's a way to get books out to the public. I do too. And, you know, it's, sometimes it's just spitting into the wind, you know, there's just no, no, no rhyme or reason for how one person gets discovered and reviewed and, and in front of all the people that you want to get in front of. And, you know, thousand other people don't. <laughs> Before we got on air, Melissa, you were saying that you wanted to share some of what you've learned. And I, I'm all ears because this field is very much still a mystery to me. <laughs> it definitely is. And, you know, when just when you feel like you've mastered something, there it goes changing again. <laughs> you know, like you're, you know, two steps forward, 10 steps back. Exactly. Exactly. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. But you know, you have received a ton of accolades for Three Muses, right? So it's won some awards. It was um, one of the most anticipated books of 2022 on a few different lists. So, I mean, you're out of the gate really strong, which is so exciting. That is so kind. Thank you. And you mentioned that you were based in North Carolina. I'm lucky enough to have a publisher based in North Carolina, Regal House Publishing. And my book won there prize called the Petrichor Prize for Finely Crafted Fiction, which came with a publishing contract and an honorarium. So for me, it was kind of like getting struck by lightning. I was very thrilled. That's so exciting. So before we dive a little deeper into our topic, can you tell us a little bit about Three Muses? Sure. Um, So Three Muses is um, a love story between a man named John who survives the Holocaust by singing for the commandant of the camp that murdered his family. 
Um, he ultimately makes his way to America and becomes a psychiatrist. And he uh, goes to Paris. Um, he's at a professional meeting and somebody hands him a ticket to the ballet, but he doesn't want to go to the ballet because music is really fraught for him. It's It carries tremendous sadness and tragedy, but it's also the means to his survival. He goes and he falls in love with a ballerina who he sees dancing on stage. Her name is Katya Simonova. And unbeknownst to John, she's enmeshed in an abusive, complex relationship with her choreographer, with whom she also co-creates a lot of things. So it's a very mixed message. Um, and so this is their story. The three muses of the title are song, discipline, and memory. And those three muses come from a Greek tradition that I was not familiar with um, from the island of Boeotia. But th in this tradition, there were three muses. And when I found them, I was really thrilled because I thought it kind of framed up my whole novel. John is loosely associated with song. Katya is loosely associated with discipline. And then memory, the third one, is what the whole book's about. That's fascinating. I'm writing that down to remember that. Um, okay, so that's a kind of a little snapshot of the book, Three Muses. And right out of the gate, we have just a lot of emotional elements from the concentration camp and, you know, the, the fact that John was forced to do something for someone, you know, that, that was in such conflict with what happened to his family. So maybe we can use that as a segue into our topic, which is the benefits of being a little bit older Yes, when you write, because you're, you know, I think young people <laughs> often think that they are so wise and, you know, have all of this knowledge. But the fact is that we gain so much as we just experience life and the wisdom I think that we have when we're a little bit older, you just can't even explain it. It's just kind of, it just kind of grows in you. So I love that. Thank you. Um, so I love that question that you just asked, Melissa. Um, I have a concept that I just made up this name. It's called emotional stamina. And I feel like that when we're younger, there are certain emotional issues that are too overwhelming to deal with. Um, and my book is, um, it's a love story, but it deals with some very serious topics. And I very much as a writer want to, um, I want to reach my readers emotionally. I think that's really important. And John has this tremendous problem that he carries with him. He has this insurmountable trauma, yet he's been saved, yet he is the only survivor of his family and suffers tremendous guilt over that. And he also feels a lot of pressure to give back. So the fact that he becomes a psychiatrist is not really accidental. He needs to heal himself, and then he wants to become a healer. So the whole package of John is meant to demonstrate emotional complexity and that we don't really, we don't live in a world of binaries, good and bad, you know, right and wrong, black and white, all of those things. It's life is more complex than that. How do you feel? So one of the things we 
you know are talking about is this is your debut novel yeah I, my novel came out at the end of september and i turned 65 in october and you are 65 <laughs> is that correct thank you <laughs> okay well happy birthday a few months ago <laughs> but how so could you have written this novel 10 years ago or 20 years ago and what you know if if not or if even if you have in what ways would it have been different and so in what ways has the wisdom and just the experience you've acquired throughout the years influenced how this novel turned out so i love that question there are different answers the first and foremost um is that i think that we writers have to do our 10,000 hours of apprenticeship, no matter how you do them. Yeah. So you mentioned that I had written other novels, but I was not able to get them published, but I see them as being part of my apprenticeship. So one craft um, thing that I learned along the way is the power of ambiguity in fiction. I think, you know, I'm a lawyer. So I think when I first started writing, I want to prove everything and, you know, make tie up all my loose knots. But I think as a fiction writer and reader, we readers actually prize ambiguity because it makes us think. And because fiction is a reflection of life, it's not life itself, but it's reflection. And life has a lot of ambiguity ambiguities, but also mysteries. There's a lot of mystery, in, I hope, in my novel. Um, and also, I think that I like to talk about this because I think you probably have a lot of listeners who are writers. Um, it was difficult. It, it's difficult to sustain that much rejection. Um, you know, you're, uh, uh, reading and writing is a partnership. The writer doesn't get heard. The writer is the tree falling in the forest if they don't get read. So I had a lot of despair about sort of the silence on the other half of the equation. Um, by the same token, I feel like I don't think I could have withstood that level of rejection in my 20s. I just, I, I don't think so. But I also took strength from several things. One was that I kept going. I mean, I would cry for a few days and then I'd be back at my computer writing. So I thought, well, this is meaningful. I have to pay attention to this. And the other thing that really helped me is the recognition that in writing, um, rejection is really what's normal. Acceptance is really the exception. Yeah, that, and that's a very hard lesson to learn. And there's a quote, right? The difference between somebody that succeeds and somebody who fails is that the person who succeeds never gives up. Something to that. I fact. love that. I've never heard that before. <laughs> I can't think of who said it, but somebody famous. Um but it's so easy to want to give up because mm -hmm. rejection is so hard and we put our heart and our souls into what we write and to have people tell us, no, we don't like it or no, this is not right for us. You know, it's hard to separate that personal emotional connection to our writing from the business side of things. And ultimately, this is a business. So, yeah, that's yes. so hard. And I also think that... Um, <clears throat> it took me a long time to figure out who I should be listening to. I think my instincts at the beginning were too broad. I was sort of taking in everything that everybody was saying to me. And I, I believe in listening to your critics. I think it's really important. But I think I had to develop a professional filter between mm -hmm. is this criticism resonating with me or does it feel like something I don't agree with? With Three Muses, I, I started writing in 2010 
And I did ask for a fair amount of advice and people were very generous, but I got advice that ultimately was not helpful. One, one piece of advice was write this story completely chronologically. And it took me about two or three years to realize that structure wasn't going to work for this book. And it was trial and error. And it was learning on some level to trust myself as an artist. It took a long time for me to have any faith in that. Um, that's so interesting because that's a topic that's come up quite a few times with different authors about writing chronologically, telling your story chronologically, mm-hmm. and also the actual process of writing chronologically, mm-hmm. or can you jump around mm-hmm. when you write? And I do jump around, and it's when I discovered Scrivener that I basically w- felt the freedom to not get stuck and then just stop because I wasn't sure what to do next or, you know, I was having some problem with where I was going because I could just stop and move to another scene that I did understand or that I did know or that I felt like writing at that moment. So there's that sort of writing chronologically and then also telling your story chronologically, which, you know, two different things, but both apropos. (laughs) Yeah. And you're reflecting what I also feel, which is, you know, kind of my personal mantra is, if you can stay one sentence ahead of yourself, then you're probably going to be okay. And I feel the way you do, if you're stuck on something, just move somewhere else. So I, and beginnings and endings are really hard. So for a lot of my work, I start in the middle and I do that with book reviews as well, where sometimes I just have to write the middle and then find the overarching theme and put that up top. And, and then at the conclusion, I I think writing in order is can be very stressful because if you get stuck, you, um, I think your best bet is not to stay, <laughs> come back yeah. to it because otherwise you can kind of angst out and that's not good. <laughs> right. Right. And one thing I learned is that when I get stuck, it's because I've gone off the rail somewhere or some, there's oh, a problem. Interesting. Yeah. That I need to fix. And and that's maybe just true for me. Everybody's got, you know, different process and it, you know, in a different way of doing things. But for me, when I get stuck, it's because I've gone awry somewhere, you know, and I've got to fix that. And so I have to kind of let it percolate in my subconscious and move on to something else. And then inevitably I solve the problem and can come back. But that's I mean, how I, I, I don't really I think that must happen to me too. I, I sometimes put it in terms like go out for a walk and see what percolates. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, yeah, I mean, there's a corollary to what you're saying, I guess, that, you know, not you, you could go off the rails, but you might be focusing on the wrong thing or you might be right. um, beating a dead horse. I mean, there's so many ways to get stuck. So, yeah. Going back to our topic, you talked about the rejection and being able to sort of emotionally handle some of what comes with publishing at a younger age. But what about the sort of wisdom and life experiences that you layer into what you're writing that comes from those experiences of living life? You know, could you have written this book with the characters as they are and all of the layers and the emotional depth and the relationships when you were 20, when you haven't experienced those relationships. And you mentioned um, before we started recording that you came to a point where you really wanted to dive into your family's history too, which didn't happen at 20. So can you talk about that in terms of, you know, the benefit of writing when you're older versus younger? Sure. The, um, 
as I said, my two principal characters, one is, is a psychiatrist, John, who's a Holocaust survivor, and the other is ballerina, Katya. So I'm going to start with Katya, the ballerina. I um, was lucky enough to study ballet as a child. Um, I grew up in Philadelphia, and I was studying. My mother put me in a school that was professionally bound, and it was pretty clear, as many people will tell you who study ballet, by age 11 or 12, I had no future. And that school, because they were professional, were they were kind of unrelenting. They were like, "You can't be advanced. You can't be here." And you, you and Audrey Hepburn, so you're in good company. <laughs> I mean, at the age of twelve or thirteen or whatever it was, that felt like an absolute epic failure. And now I see it as a great benefit. I mean, it certainly taught me the value of discipline. I love ballet, and I loved watching the professionals rehearse. That was just something that stayed with me forever. So I think age allowed me to come appreciate that experience and funnel it into the main character of this book. But also I wanted to lift the curtain up. So there's, I wanted to show that ballet isn't just a bunch of pretty people, you know, dancing on stage. It's brute labor. It's incredibly difficult. Um, and I like it. Kind of a dark underbelly to it, isn't there? Definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. And and there's incredible amount of injury and sweat. I didn't want. To, I mean, eating disorders. I didn't get into eating disorders, but you know, it's 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 really so demanding, and it's it's twenty four seven, and there's really no world outside of of that kind of life because it it's so demanding, and so the relationship that Katya has with her choreographer is really circumscribed by the fact that Katya hasn't lived anything else. That's where she has been her whole life. So similarly, I did take some personal experience um, with John. I was telling you before we got on, I grew up in a Jewish family that was extremely secular. My parents had no interest in organized religion. And the family, the extended family, was culturally extremely Jewish, but nobody, nobody was observant. And so the Holocaust was in many ways my first introduction to Judaism, which I think is not unusual for people in my generation. We had relatives who died in the, in the Holocaust and friends whose parents had survived the Holocaust. So, you know, people who came to Thanksgiving with tattoos on their arms, it was present. It wasn't hugely discussed, um, but the older I got, you know, several things became clearer to me. The first is how close this was to my own birth. And in history, it's just a minute before I, you know, away. Um, And also the magnitude of the crime is is so extraordinary. And also what really happened to my mother's family, my mother's first cousin survived, but she couldn't save the rest of her family was it on her to save the rest of her family? She was 17 when she got here. She had no wherewithal to be able to do that. The United States, I mean, I've learned all this much more recently. The United States wasn't letting people in, you know, the, the borders had closed around the world. I mean, there's so many nuances to this. So the older I've gotten, the more I've kind of educated myself, not just about the Holocaust, but about Jewish history in general, Jewish observance. I'm still not, not, I'm still not an observant Jew, but I, I do want to know my own roots and I do want to know my history. Um, and I want, I had educated my children because I thought they should know where they came from. Um, and uh, the other thing I guess I will say is, um, 
the, um, as I just said, the magnitude of the crime is so immense that it's very, very difficult. I think it's impossible to take in. So I think we know as writers that sometimes one person's story can be a lot more powerful than all the statistics that you can provide. So I wanted to tell a story about John and make him human so that people could get some kind of feeling for what this kind of loss feels like. I don't think I could ever have achieved that, but I wanted to suggest and pay it forward because um, unfortunately the world is full of um, genocides going on still. And I just feel it's, as a humanitarian matter, it's really important to tell these stories. Was it emotionally challenging for you to write John as a character with his backstory and, and who he is? Yes, it was very emotionally challenging and upsetting. And you, I think we have a vocabulary to talk about this, but I think as a writer, I had to really work at not going to the tropey kind of things that we say, but get very, very, very specific. And that's really painful. Um, one thing I realized he, he gets to the camp when he's about 12 or ish and he's there for a few years. And what is a child? He's separated from his mother and brother. What does a child feel? And he, John, and this, this, I've talked to Holocaust survivors who talked about this, you know, he absolutely expected to see his mother and brother again. He didn't realize they were murdered the day they arrived. So when the camp is liberated and John is about 15, it's the first time his brain can take into account that that his his family has been murdered. And that's not unusual. That's not unusual. There were children who managed to escape with the Red Cross or through the kinder transport that got to England or America who absolutely expected to see their families again. And um, because you, that's what you would think. Nobody could imagine a scale yeah. murder. I was going to say how at, at that age and even even when it's around you, I think you must go through some part of denial and, and really not comprehend the scope of what mm -hmm. is happening, not only where you're at, but, you mm -hmm. know, across many countries. And I think the world didn't really know. I mean, the certainly more a lot of people knew that were denying that it was going on, including Roosevelt. But, um, you know, it was unimaginable, I think, that, that, that Germany could that the Nazis had set up this vast killing machine. It was, you know, it's very, very efficient. So when you tell the story in Three Muses, is you mentioned that it's not told chronologically. So oh. you you go from John at fifteen to and to him being an adult, right? Mm -hmm. And and so is is some of this his stuff that he tells um, his partner. Is some of it backstory that you go into? Mm -hmm. Well, the story opens in 1963 when John is an adult and an American citizen and he's at the Ballet of Paris. So he looks like, you know, we don't know who he is really. And then Katya and John, their stories are told somewhat in parallel, but I had a lot of backstory that I ended up cutting. I mean, again, this is a craft point. I think I probably cut a hundred pages of backstory because I felt it was slowing it down. And my technique is to splice some backstory in as needed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so 
John has these flashbacks. That's what what happens with him, where where we see kind of what was going on with him. We learned that he came from this very, you know, loving family in Mainz. He had a middle class, you know, comfortable lifestyle. And like many German Jews, um, he didn't realize what it meant to be Jewish until Hitler came to power. Um, and he was a child, so he obviously didn't understand what was going on. But um, but yeah, so I try to splice in the backstory. Katya also has a similar um is a similar technique with her. Her mother, we find out that her mother was killed in a car accident when Katya was seven, but we don't really know why that was until later in the book. So these are two damaged characters mm -hmm. and and together, I mean, ultimately, is it a story about healing? Mm -hmm. Is it a love story? Is it, do they, you know, the fact that they both have these tragic backgrounds, you know, how, how does that impact their relationship without giving everything away. <laughs> I mean, I think it definitely is a story of healing and it's also um, realistic in the sense that healing is really important and time is a big healer, but some things are too big to get over. Mm -hmm. So I think both those seemingly contradictory um, ideas are true about both characters. Okay. That's so interesting. It's the whole forgive and forget thing, right? You know, you can, you can deal with trauma or tragedy or whatever to a degree, but there are some things that are just so massive or epic that there's, there's, you know, it's, you just can't even get your brain around it to move past it. It's just there. It's just part of the fabric. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree with that. And I feel like, um, I really question, I mean, I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I really question the idea of closure. I think it's overrated because <laughs> I think there's not a lot of closure. I think people mm -hmm. learn how to live with things. They learn how to manage things. They, um, in John's case, he, part of his healing was really becoming a healer. That's key to his healing. Um, mm -hmm. So people find ways to give back, which is extremely meaningful. Don't they say that... Um a, a good percentage of psychologists need psychologists themselves <laughs> for I mean, that very reason. That probably. True. I'm certainly not an expert, but that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I feel like I've read that more than once. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, and I I think you know I in my travels I've noticed that some of the most empathetic giving people are people who come from very difficult circumstances, and instead of getting angry or or maybe they were angry but they overcame their anger by. Um, you know, sending it out in the form of love. And that's a concept that I really value. Yeah. And I think that that crosses over into other areas as well. You know, I teach writing and part of what I realized a long time ago is that the more I teach, the more I learn, mm -hmm. you know, so by doing you're absorbing what you're putting out into the world, as you just said. So, and I think that's true, probably emotionally, psychologically, empathetically, but also practically with things like, you know, writing and other crafts like that. That's so interesting. I'm not a teacher, but I think like you, a lot of teachers say they feel like they get so much from their students and it's a similar mm -hmm. concept. If you were to give a couple of tips or ideas based on you having published your, your debut novel, um, you've written other novels, but your debut published novel at the point in life that you are, what would you, what would you tell people who, you know, might be in a similar place? 
So I have a few. Some of them are craft and some of them are more um, like how do you keep your spirits up? So I think um, it's important to have, I think it's great to have readers, but I think it's important to filter who's reading your material. Anyone who is destructive or making you feel terrible about yourself is not a reader that you should have. I think such good <laughs> advice. <laughs> I really believe in criticism, but there's criticism and then there's personal destruction. So those people should not be in your life and they should not be your readers. Right. Second of all, what we discussed earlier, when you're stuck, find something else to work on. Um, so there's a trust element that you'll, you'll solve that problem. And I also feel like, um, persistence is really huge and a recognition that, um, rejection is what's normal. I love that writing advice to get 100 rejections a year. I think that's a great piece of advice. And just for example, I'm so lucky I'm taping this from, um, a writer's residency at the Virginia center for the creative arts, which is a beautiful, amazing experience. And as I was driving down here, I got three rejections. <laughs> just like, you know, that's just, that's the life, right? It's just, I'm so lucky to get it here, but three other places don't want to talk to me. That's just normal. Um, I also feel um, that particularly for novelists, which are such gigantic projects, um, my advice to myself is if I'm one sentence ahead of myself, I'm okay. I often have no idea where things are going, what the ending's going to look like. But if I know the next sentence, then I feel comfortable to turn off the computer and return to work because usually writing begets writing. So those are some of my ideas. Okay. Well, I think that's great. I love your background. I love your experiences. And I'm so happy for you with this novel, Three Muses, published now and, and just receiving so much great praise. And I'm looking forward to reading it. And very cool that it's published right here in North Carolina. <laughs> thank you so much, Melissa. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being my guest today. And I would love to have you back at some point to talk about something else because you have many things I think you can talk about. <laughs> I would be really delighted and it's really a privilege to be in conversation with you. Okay. Well, thank you. I feel the same. Thank you again to Martha and Toll for being here with me today. So fun to talk to her and get her perspective on writing when you're a little bit older. Check out her book, Three Muses. And again, I will see you next time. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you're like me and like bookish and writerly products, check out the WriterSpark Tea Public Store. Remember to like and subscribe to this podcast or follow. And if you like YouTube, check us out there and subscribe. Come back for more tips and tricks about fiction writing and learn more about our online courses at www.writersparkacademy.com. I'm Melissa Bourbon. Thank you for listening. And until next time, happy writing.